Okay. I want to start with a question. When was the last time that you saw something absolutely amazing? You don't have to answer. Just think about it. When was the last time you saw something absolutely amazing, jaw-dropping? I can't believe I just saw that. That's the most amazing thing I've seen in a long time. When was the last time? If it's been a while, watch the screen. Amazing, watch this. Amazing, right? One of the things that interests me about this is that if you go online and Google amazing videos, you get like a thousand videos like this. This is like a 10 minute long video where they're just showing clips of things like that. And there is an endless, seemingly endless supply online of videos like this of things under the heading, most amazing video ever, right? Um, in fact, if you, if you do a search and you, do, you search the hashtag for, for amazing, and some of you are like, I don't know what that means, but uh, you know, if you're under 40, you understand what that means. If you, if you put the hashtag mark and then amazing and do a search on that, what you find is all kinds of videos like this. And the other thing that you find is like um, you know, cats that can juggle and things of that nature. You know, all kinds of stupid pet tricks you find when you do hashtag amazing, which the reason I say about the hashtag is because when it has a hashtag, that means someone has labeled it that so that when you search it, you will find this to be amazing. It's a generally understood that everyone will agree it must be amazing. The other thing you find under the hashtag amazing constantly, and some of you are going to, now don't take out your phones and look this up right now, but when you get home, you'll check this out. The other thing you find is all kinds of people that are hashtagging like a picture of them with a bunch of their friends saying amazing. That getting together with friends seems to be the definition of amazing if you trust the internet. Uh, I'm sharing this with you to say I have this concern that maybe in the modern age we have watered down the meaning of the word amazing, right? I mean, it's interesting if your cat knows how to play dead. That's interesting. But amazing? It, there are certain words that, 
because of the way we use them, they lose their significance, right? The word amazing should be saved for something that is so astonishing, you can't stop thinking about it, you can't stop talking about it, you can't explain it, you don't know how anything like this could ever be, that's amazing. We do the same thing, maybe not as much today, but maybe 10, 15 years ago, the big trend was everything was awesome, right? Wow, this cookie is awesome. Wow, my cat is awesome. Wow, my favorite team is awesome. And, and when you take a word like awesome, that is supposed to be reserved for that which truly inspires awe, then you have no word to use for what truly inspires awe, right? Well, that's what's happened with us with amazing. We have settled for something so much less than amazing, and we call it amazing. We are impressed by too much. And we've been talking the last several weeks about the call of Jesus upon our lives. And we, we basically have said that Jesus is constantly calling us, and he calls us, first of all, to come to him, right? And, and that when we think about someone who's called to come to Jesus, we tend to picture um, or envision an idea where somebody has some sort of a need, they come to Jesus, they have an experience with Jesus, some sort of encounter with Jesus, and then they go away. But when Jesus calls us to come to him, he's not just saying, come to me, bump into me, let me rub off on you a little bit, and then go back to life. He is calling us to not just come to him, but to come with him. That's when we had these banners made. We had one that says, come to me, and one that says, come with me, because it's all one calling. When God calls us to come to him, he calls us to come with him. And we could, we could illustrate this a thousand different ways through scripture, but if you start in Genesis and go all the way through Revelation, you will find that the story is told again and again and again about God putting a calling on someone's life, and that calling is to begin a journey with God, just as Abraham did, just as the children of Israel did through the wilderness, just as we see over and over and over again, someone going with God, walking with God, experiencing God with their lives. And when you begin to do that, when you begin to answer that call, now the word amazing really can come into play in your life. Because here's the thing. If you answer the call to Jesus, amazing is the new normal. For people who are followers of Jesus, amazing becomes normal. Uh, if you're going to follow Jesus, amazing things are going to happen. You know why? Because wherever Jesus is, amazing things happen, right? Have you seen that in your life? That when you walk closely with Jesus, you experience the amazing? We see it over and over and over again in the Gospels, how when people are confronted by Jesus, when people encounter Jesus, when people hear Jesus speak, when people see Jesus work miracles, when people um, come into relationship with Jesus, constantly the scripture writers tell us they were amazed. Or sometimes it will say, and everyone was astonished. Or sometimes it will say, and they marveled at what they saw. And sometimes it will say, and they were frightened. It's, it's amazing how often it says frightened. That when they see Jesus do something amazing, they're frightened. They begin to realize there's something going on here that is way beyond my control. There's something going on here that is way beyond my power. This is not about me. I'm in the middle of something that I don't have control over. And for most of us, that is frightening. 
And to be honest with you, I think that's one of the reasons that so many of us tend to keep a safe distance from Jesus. We, we talk about Jesus, we think about Jesus, we may pray and read the Word a little bit, but we're not really going to actually get really close to what Jesus is doing because that tends to be kind of radical, it tends to be kind of upsetting, it tends to be kind of scary, and we don't like scary, we like comfortable, so we keep our distance because even though we know God is good, when we see His power, it's frightening. And we're not sure what to do about that. But no matter what Jesus is doing, the term amazement is attached to it. And I just want to illustrate it for you in the Scripture. Let's begin in the Gospel of Mark. So if you turn to your New Testament, second book of the New Testament is the Gospel of Mark. And I want you to go to Mark chapter 1. Obviously, Mark chapter 1 is going to be the very beginning of uh, Mark's account of Jesus. And we're going to see the very, very early part of Jesus' ministry here in Mark chapter 1. And I want us to pick it up in verse 21, because Jesus is not doing miracles here. He's not casting out demons. He's not raising the dead. He's not doing anything that would cause people to be blown away, and yet people are amazed. Look what he's doing. Verse 21, they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and began to teach. Now, before we go on, you should know that this is absolutely traditional. If you're a rabbi, which Jesus is, and you're visiting a town, you would go on the Sabbath to the synagogue, and as the visiting rabbi, you would be honored, and they would hand you the scroll from the Old Testament, perhaps the book of Isaiah or the book of Jeremiah or Daniel, and you would unscroll it, and you would read it, and then you would preach from that scroll. And so Jesus is, is the visiting rabbi. He comes to Capernaum, and they ask him to teach. And so in verse... Uh, 22, it gives us the response that they have. It says, they were amazed at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Now make a mental note of that statement. Because I want you to turn back to the Gospel of Matthew. And we're going to look at the very end of the Sermon on the Mount at the end of Matthew chapter 7. Matthew 5, 6, and 7 is the Sermon on the Mount. It's all one sermon. And we get two verses at the end of chapter 7 that just give us a little glimpse of the result of his preaching this sermon. Matthew chapter 7, verse 28. When Jesus had finished these words, the crowds were amazed at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one having authority and not as their scribes. Here we see this statement again. Just as it was true in the synagogue in Mark, so it was true on the hillside in Matthew that after Jesus speaks the word of God forth to them, that they are amazed, and the reason they're amazed is because he's so different from the teachers that they're used to hearing. Now, all of us could probably remember some teachers that we had in school, whether it was elementary school, all the way up through graduate school, wherever it was, we all remember certain teachers who could not hold our attention to save their lives, right? Teachers who stand up and yammer on and talk about stuff. I had a professor in college. I, I had waited because I didn't like science, and I had waited until the end to where I had to cram these science classes at the end. And the only time for me to take physics was 7 a.m. Monday, Wednesday, Friday. Now, college students don't know there is a 7 a.m., right? And so I remember going into this physics class. This was back in the you know, 15th century when they were just discovering some of this stuff. And I was in this physics class, 
And, and the teacher was not a professional teacher. He was a laid-off aerospace engineer. And so this was his first class teaching, and he didn't have any idea what he was doing. Now, you will remember, we didn't have these kind of cool projection things then. What did we have? Overhead projectors. Remember those, right? So what he would do, 7 a.m., mind you, what he would do is turn off all the lights in the room, turn on the overhead projector, and he would begin to lecture about, you know, the law of entropy. And, and now, now that's fascinating, I'll grant you. But he would lecture about the law of entropy, and what he would do would write on the overhead, and he would say, today we will discuss the law of entropy. And that's how he taught the entire hour. With the lights off, with the overhead projector on, at least I think he taught the whole hour because I was asleep 10 minutes in every week. We finally came up with a plan because we found out he grades on a curve. Thank God for the curve or I would not be standing before you today with any kind of degree because, because uh, we made an agreement. We split the group into three groups. One group came on Mondays, one group came on Wednesdays, the other came on Fridays and we shared notes. And, and I think I probably got like a 55% in the class, which was like a B minus. <laughs> it's the worst teacher I ever had. Now, all of you know teachers like that, right? All of you have had that experience of some level where a teacher failed to captivate you. And you can think of that teacher who in your mind is a very bad teacher, and you can compare that teacher to a great teacher. Somebody who captivated the students from day one, minute one, who taught you a subject that you never were interested in learning and you became passionate about it because your teacher was passionate about it and they had creative ways to do it and they always had interesting stories to tell and they were always funny when they did it and you go, that's a great teacher. And so you contrast these bad teachers with a good teacher and when you hear a good teacher, you know it by contrast from a bad teacher, right? That's not what they're saying here about Jesus. They're not saying, hey, the scribes and Pharisees who normally teach us they just don't have any talent for teaching. It's my guess that some of the rabbis that normally taught were very gifted speakers and some were not. That would be typical, right? That there would be some who were good and some that weren't. He, they're not commenting, they're not amazed at Jesus' teaching ability. What is it that amazes them? In both passages, it says the same thing. They were amazed at his teaching for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as their scribes. The thing that amazed them was not his way of teaching. It was the source of his authority. Everyone else, like this is me, right? On Sunday mornings, I stand here and oftentimes pick up this book, right? You see me with this book in my hand many times every Sunday morning, right? I want to leave no doubt in your mind that the things that I'm teaching are coming from this book. So I tell you, Bring your own Bibles, look up the passage with me, we read the passages. You know the reason that I do that? It's because I don't have any authority to tell you how to live. And God does. And I want to make sure that when I'm saying one of the many things that I say that you don't want to hear, that you know that it's God you should be mad at and not me. <laughs> Jesus spoke with authority because he wrote the word of God. Jesus spoke with authority because according to John, Jesus 
is the Word of God. There was something so unique about Jesus that whenever he opened his mouth and taught, everyone stopped talking, everyone stopped daydreaming, everyone stopped checking their cell phones, everyone stopped thinking about the big game that's coming up in a few hours. And instead, they were captivated. In fact, over and over, the writers of Scripture say they were amazed at his authority when he spoke because he is himself God. So when Jesus teaches, people are amazed. But it goes way beyond that. It's not just what he says that is amazing to people. It's what he does. Now, I want to give you, I could pick any of a hundred examples, but we're going to just go back and forth between Matthew and Mark. So let's go to Mark chapter 4. Because the Gospels are filled with stories of Jesus doing things that are amazing. And I want us to pick it up in Mark chapter 4. Because I love this section of the last part of Mark 4 into the the first half of Mark 5. Because all of it takes place in one day. We get this glimpse of what it would be like to spend a day with Jesus. So this one day with Jesus we're going to see beginning in verse 35 of Mark 4. On that day... When evening came, he said to them, let us go over to the other side, that is to his 12 disciples. And he's saying to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Leaving the crowd, they took him along with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. And there arose a fierce gale of wind, and the waves were breaking over the boat, so much that the boat was already filling up. Jesus himself was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Now, before we continue the story, let's stop here for a second. Jesus is asleep in the back of the boat. Nothing wrong with that. These guys have no problem with that. These guys go across this sea all the time. They're used to it. But this is an unusual storm, and this storm comes up, and it's so powerful that the boat is sinking. It's filling up with water. And you can just imagine the guys that are on this boat are frantic. And they're grabbing anything that can hold water, and they are bailing, right, as fast as they can. The problem is the water is coming in faster than they can get it out, and the level of the boat is going down, and they are literally saying to themselves, we are going to end up at the bottom of the sea. We're not going to survive this. And they look at Jesus, and he's asleep. Now, normally, it wouldn't bother them that he's asleep because he's the master, and they're the disciples, and they're doing the work of of managing the boat, and, and he should be sleeping, but... But they need his help. The boat is filling up with water and they don't have enough manpower to get it bailed out fast enough. And so they go and wake him up. And when they wake him up, they are mad because he's sleeping while they're dying. And you'd be mad too. So they go and they shake him and they say to him, don't you care that we're dying? How in the world can you possibly Tell what's going on here and just roll over and cuddle up to your teddy bear. This is incredible. How could you possibly do this? We're dying without you. We need your help. And so Jesus responds, verse 39. He got up and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Hush, be still. And the wind died down and it became perfectly calm. And he said to them, why are you afraid? How is it that you have no faith? They became very much afraid and said to one another, who then is this? That even the wind and the sea 
obey him. These guys were scared when the waves were breaking over the boat. It says they were afraid. They were panicking. But now the sea is calm because Jesus stood up in the boat, looked at the storm, and said, hush. Now, as a parent, you know this. There are many times when you need to look at your child and say, hush. How well does that work for you? <laughs> Not so well, right? We as parents don't even have enough power to get our three-year-olds to hush when they need to hush. Jesus has enough power that all he has to do is speak and the wind immediately obeys him. The clouds immediately obey him. The water becomes as clean as glass. And that's when it says they became very much afraid. They were afraid before Jesus did this. Now the, call, the storm is calmed and they're more afraid. Why are they more afraid? Because they are in a boat with a guy who could do that. And that's an astonishing thing. They're amazed. But the story doesn't end there because they get over to the other side of the sea and it says in chapter 5, verse 1, they came to the other side of the sea into the country of the Gerasenes. And when he got out of the boat, immediately a man from the tombs with an unclean spirit met him. And he had his dwelling among the tombs and no one was able to bind him anymore, even with a chain, because he had often been bound with shackles and chains and the chains had uh, been torn apart by him and the shackles broken into pieces and no one was strong enough to subdue him. Constantly day and night he was screaming among the tombs and in the mountains and gnashing his teeth with stones uh, and, and gnashing himself with stones. Seeing Jesus from a distance, he ran up and bowed down before him and shouting with a loud voice, he said, what business do we have with each other, Jesus, son of the most high God? I implore you by God, do not torment me. For he had been saying to him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And he was asking him, what is your name? And he said to him, my name is Legion, for we are many. Now Jesus, multiple times in the Gospels, is encountered by someone possessed by a demon. This man is controlled by a legion of demons. Probably, based on the, the concept of a Roman legion, probably upwards of a thousand demons. That's no wonder no one would come around him. He lived in the graveyard. You know, today we, we kind of giggle about graveyards being scary and all that kind of stuff. This is a graveyard, graveyard no one went to because there was a crazy man who lived in this graveyard and he would come after you and kill you. Now, this man has a legion of demons in him um, verse uh, 11, uh, now there was a large herd of swine feeding nearby on the mountain. The demons implored him saying, send us into the swine so that we may enter them. Jesus gave them permission and coming out, the unclean spirits entered the swine and, he, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea, about 2,000 of them, and they were drowned in the sea. I don't know how many demons there were, but it was enough to take out 2,000 swine, Okay which is a very, very interesting little ironic twist here, right? Because these are pigs. Jewish pig farmers. You don't see that every day. 
And there's a reason. The law forbids them to have anything to do with pigs, right? These guys are raising pigs outside of the law and then using the pigs to sell to the, to the um, uh, Gentiles in the area. And so isn't it interesting how when it's time to cast out the demons, he casts them into the swine and the swine run into the sea and these guys lose their entire investments when all of a sudden there are 2,000 pigs floating in the Sea of Galilee. What a story, right? Verse 14, their herdsmen ran away and reported it in the city and in the country, and the people came to see what it was that had happened. They came to Jesus and observed the man who had been demon-possessed, sitting down, clothed and in his right mind, the very man who had had the legion, and here it is again, and they became frightened. This guy used to have thousands of demons in him. He could break chains and he was a danger to be around. And now he's in his right mind, clothed and sitting calmly. And when they say this, now they're very frightened. Why are they very frightened? Well, it doesn't, it's not lost on me that he just killed all their pigs. It's not lost on me that these are people who do pig farming for a living in Israel. But isn't it interesting that they are frightened of a man who's in his right mind. No, they're not frightened of him. They're frightened of this man, Jesus, who has power over thousands of demons. And they don't know what to do. They're amazed. Verse 16, those who had seen it described it to them and how it had happened to the demon-possessed man and all about the swine. And they began to implore him to leave their region. You know, you think, well, Jesus came and did miracles. Like casting out demons, what better thing could you do for somebody, right? And all they could think is, please, 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 get back in your boat and leave. They're terrified of the presence of God. Verse 17, they began to implore him to leave their region. And as he was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed was imploring him that he might accompany him. And he did not let him. But he said to him, go home to your people and report to them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in Decapolis what great things Jesus had done for him. And here it is. And everyone was amazed. Everyone is amazed at these great things that Jesus is able to do. So it's such a funny thing. He, it's almost as if Jesus planned this. He gets his disciples in the boat, puts them through this test out on the sea, right? Proves himself to be God by his power over nature. And then he gets to the other side, and you think, well, if you're going to go to all that trouble to get to the other side, you're going to spend a few days and do some things. No, he just goes to, to the shore, casts the demons out of the guy, the swine go into the sea, and Jesus gets back in his boat and comes back. It's the same day. And now he's come back to the other side of the sea where he began, and we're going to pick it up in verse 21 of chapter 5. When Jesus had crossed over again in the boat to the other side, a large crowd gathered around him, and so he stayed by the seashore. One of the synagogue officials named Jairus came up, and on seeing him fell at his feet, and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Please come and lay your hands on her so that she will get well and live. And he went off with him, and a large crowd was following him and pressing in on him. 
And this is the point in the story, as you may remember. He's on his way to Jairus' house. His daughter is near death, and he is going to heal her, Jairus is hoping, so that she won't die. And as he's on his way, and there's a large crowd following him, the people are pressing in around him, and this is the story where the woman touches the, hint, the fringe of his garment. Remember that? She's had a hemorrhage for years, and the doctors can do nothing for her. She's getting worse and not better. She's near death. She's a complete outcast, and she just touches the fringe of Jesus' robe, and when she touches his robe, immediately she is healed and set free from the uh, ailment that she had. Now, I don't know how long this took. The, the scripture tells us Jesus has a conversation with her. He encourages her. He calls her his daughter. He talks about the healing, and everybody is amazed, and they're all in awe. I don't know how long this took, but it took a while, and here's how we know. Because while this was happening, Jairus' daughter died. Jesus, at just the right moment, was on his way to Jairus' house to heal the daughter, but he stopped to deal with this other woman. And when he stopped, the time that it took, Jairus' daughter died. We find this out because if we look at verse uh, 35, it says, while he was still speaking, they came from the house of the synagogue official saying, your daughter has died. Why trouble the teacher anymore? But Jesus, overhearing what was being spoken, said to the synagogue official, do not be afraid any longer, only believe. And he allowed no one to accompany him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. And they came to the house of the synagogue official, and he saw a commotion and people loudly weeping and wailing. And entering in, he said to them, why make a commotion and weep? The child has not died, but is asleep. They began laughing at him. But putting them all out, he took along the child's father and mother and his own companions and entered the room where the child was. Taking the child by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kum, which translated means little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately, the girl got up and began to walk, for she was 12 years old. And immediately, they were completely astonished. Every stop Jesus makes during this day, people are amazed. In this case, this young girl is already dead, and Jesus touches her and gives a command to a dead person, and even the dead obey his commands. So we've seen that, the, that nature has to obey his commands. We have seen that Satan has to obey his commands. And we have seen now that even the dead have to obey his commands. Sickness, no problem for Jesus. Uh, natural disaster, no problem for Jesus. Demonic attack, no problem for Jesus. Death, not a problem for Jesus. As the story goes on, we find out that even his own death is not a problem for Jesus. And as he is revealing himself more and more, people are becoming more and more amazed. And when we talk about being amazed at that, it kind of makes the cat videos seem stupid, doesn't it? Look at who our God is. This God who can do all of this. And, and guys, I just picked one little day out of his life. We could, pick any, we could open the Gospels anywhere, put our finger down, and you would find Jesus saying or doing something that leaves everyone, including us, amazed. This is normal for Jesus. 
but it actually gets better. Because it would be enough if the decision to answer the call of Jesus and follow him resulted in getting to see him do stuff like this all the time. Wouldn't that be neat? Just to go with him and go, oh man, he just cast out some demons. Oh, he just raised a dead kid. Oh, look at he just told the wind what to do. And we could just sit and watch him. But that's not what he calls us to. When he calls us to come with him, he's calling us to participate in what he's doing. He's saying, you as a follower of Jesus do not have to be a spectator in the amazing. You can be a participant in the amazing. That's what he's called us to. Let me show you what I mean. Go back to the book of Matthew, chapter 14. Matthew chapter 14, beginning in verse 28. This is an entirely different story. We once again are going to see the disciples out on the sea in the middle of a very dangerous storm. The difference in this story is that Jesus is not with them in the boat. Now they're having to rely upon their own faith. Now they're having to trust God. Jesus is not with them and they're facing this treacherous storm in the middle of the night. And as they're facing this storm and they're all hugging each other and crying and saying their goodbyes and all that kind of stuff, thinking they're going to drown, they look out and in the distance they see a figure that looks like a man coming toward them on the water. And they say, man, it's, getting, it's going from bad to worse. We were in a storm. That was bad enough. Now we're being haunted by a ghost. There's a ghost that is coming to us on the water. And they cry out and the ghost responds in the voice of Jesus. He says, it is I, Jesus. And Peter responds, because he's always the spokesman for the group. Peter responds in verse 28. Peter said to him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, come. And Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came toward Jesus. But seeing the wind, he became frightened. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus stretched out his hand and took, took hold of him and said to him, you have little faith. Why do you doubt? When they got into the boat, the wind stopped. And those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, You are certainly God's son. Remember what they said last time? He still calmed the storm. They looked at each other and they said, Who is this? Now they look at him and they say, You are certainly God's son. Jesus is revealing himself to them through the amazing. And as he does this amazing thing, there's a huge difference now because Peter has done it with him. When, and I love the fact, it just fits so well into my sermon series, like Jesus planned it this way for me, that, that when Peter wants to get out of the boat and he says, if you'll command me, and what does Jesus say to him? Come. Come to me. Come with me. Come out here on the water with me. Experience what I'm experiencing. Live in the amazing. And Peter steps out of the boat and lives in the amazing. And they are so astonished that they say, surely you are the Son of God. And let me give you another example. Let's go to the book of Acts, chapter 3. Now, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they give us the story of Jesus' public ministry. Acts tells us what happens when Jesus ascends back to heaven and the church is born. And you know that in Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit is sent and the power of God is poured out and many people are swept into the kingdom on the day of Pentecost. And then in chapter 3, we begin to see what happens when people who are filled with the Holy Spirit begin to walk with Jesus. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. 
Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the ninth hour, the hour of prayer. And a man who had been lame from his mother's womb was being carried along, whom they used to sit down every day at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, in order to beg alms of those who were entering the temple. When he saw Peter and John about to go into the temple, he began asking to receive alms. But Peter, along with John, fixed his gaze on him and said, look at us. And he began to give them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I do not possess silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, walk. And seizing him by the right hand, he raised him up, and immediately his feet and his ankles were strengthened. And then it doesn't tell us that he walked. It tells us that he began to leap and dance. All they told him to do was walk. But if you've been laying on a pallet all that time and you just looked down and watched as your skinny little legs that have no muscle grew and strengthened and someone took you by the hand and stood you up and they told you to walk, you wouldn't walk either. He danced. He was leaping. It was like going to a gymnastics competition and watching the floor exercise. This guy is going bonkers because his life has just been transformed because by the power of Jesus, as it went through the followers of Jesus, he was healed. Now, this is where it gets interesting because this is where they get into trouble. If we pick it up in chapter 4, we're going to find that they actually get arrested for this because there's a whole crowd that gathers and the whole crowd is amazed. And everyone can't believe what they're seeing, and they're astonished, and they're coming to hear more about Jesus because of this power that has been shown. And then in chapter 4, they're arrested, Peter and John, and they were, they're dragged before the tribunal, and they're sitting in the council, and they're being um, cross-examined. And we pick it up in verse 7 of chapter 4. When they had placed them in the center, they began to inquire, by what power or in what name have you done this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are on trial today for a benefit done to a sick man as to how this man has been made well, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name this man stands here before you in good health. He is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which became the chief cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven which has been given among men by which we must be saved. And then verse 13. Now as they observed the confidence of Peter and John and understood that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed and began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. What is the sign of walking with Jesus? Is the sign of walking with Jesus that you have a certain education so that you understand certain doctrines? Is it that you have certain training so that you know how to do certain ministries? Or is it that you've been with Jesus? See, when you've been with Jesus, when you've responded to this call and you're walking with Him, it is in this process of walking with Him that the Holy Spirit grows you and trains you and matures you and begins to use you to do things that you would have never believed you could see done. Let's not forget, because we say, well, Peter's an apostle, he's special. You're right. 
We don't have apostles today. We don't have people who have power to just speak a word and someone is healed. But we still serve the same God who still heals people. Amen? Amen. And, and just because we don't have an apostle to do it, that's not bad news. It's good news. Because what we know is that it is not Peter the apostle who does this. It is not by his authority. It is not by his name. But it's whose name? And whose authority? And whose power? And we walk with Jesus. And when we understand that, we will never be the same. The call of Jesus is a call that changes your whole life. Everything Jesus touches undergoes transformation. What happens when Jesus is around is nothing short of amazing. And that brings me back to my first question. What have you seen lately that was amazing? What have you participated in lately that was astonishing? Because the power of God is at work in your life. And if the answer is, gosh, I scratch my head and I can't really think of something offhand, I just want to suggest that maybe it's not that you don't have the right training, and maybe it's not that you don't have the right education, and maybe it's not that you don't have the right title or the right ministry position. Maybe it's that you're not walking as intimately with Jesus as he would want you to walk. Because the closer you get with him, the more you see the amazing. And my prayer for you, is that you would live a life that is so dominated by the Holy Spirit that you cannot be explained apart from the power of God. That's the plan that God has for us. When Jesus calls us, he holds out his hand and he says, come to me. When Jesus calls us, he gets out in front of us and he says, come with me. And when Jesus calls us to come to him, when Jesus calls us to come with him, you need to know something. Nothing is ever going to be the same again. As Christians, you don't have to settle for a life that is unimpactful. As Christians, you don't have to settle for a life that is unamazing. Jesus has called us to so much more. And if your experience with God cannot be described as amazing, I want to invite you to take him at his word and come with him. And don't keep standing back at a distance because it's frightening to stand so close to him. It's frightening for all of us. When you begin to stand close to Jesus, things get exposed in your own life that you don't want to deal with and you don't want to talk about and it makes you uncomfortable. And Jesus might ask of you some things that you just as soon he didn't ask of you. And you're going to get uncomfortable if you walk with Jesus. But here's the thing. Until you're willing to get uncomfortable and walk with Jesus, you will never be explained by the amazing. That's the plan that God has for your life. And so I ask you today, have you answered his call? Are you answering his call? Come to me. Come with me. And as you do, watch what I do. Jesus himself said, greater things than I have done you will do when I send my spirit to live within you. May we all be explained only by the power of God.